In honor of Mother's Day, we're going to take a break from our study through the letter of 1 Peter and look at a story from the life of a couple of moms, a couple of mothers. It's not a story that applies only to mothers, though. It's a story that speaks to all of us. The story that we will be looking at today is a beautiful portrayal of the heart of God toward the rejected and the downcast. If you have ever experienced rejection, felt beaten down by life, felt taken advantage of, uh, felt used and abused, felt forgotten, felt unwanted, felt helpless, felt alone, this story is for you. And if you have not experienced any of that stuff, I'm thinking, you live an amazing life. (laughs) And maybe you can share with the rest of us what your secret is. Because the rest of us get our teeth kicked in quite often by life, don't we? Genesis chapter 16. Turn over to Genesis chapter 16. Begin reading in the first verse. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. A quick note of clarification here first is, at this point in their story, Abraham and Sarah are referred to as Abram and Sarai. It's the same people, though. It's just different names. I will refer to them as Abraham and Sarah because those are the names that we are most familiar with about for these two people, even though the text, as we're reading it, will be referring to them as Abram and Sarai at this point in the book of Genesis. Now for a little background to kind of set the stage for this story so that we understand what's going on, especially in these first couple of verses. The Lord had made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would make Abraham into a great nation of people with many descendants. There was a small problem with this promise that God had made to Abraham, though Abraham and his wife Sarah have not had any children. And they are both getting along in years for having children. Abraham is 75 and Sarah is 65 in Genesis 12 when the Lord makes this promise to him. Well, no children means no descendants and no descendants means no great nation and no great nation means a failed promise. Well, several years pass. God and Abraham, they have Another conversation on this same topic in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham, he asked the Lord if one of his servants should be his heir, since he doesn't have any children. Now, this sounded like a reasonable plan. It was not that uncommon in that time for a trusted servant to be adopted to become one's heir uh, when there was no children in the family. The Lord made it clear to Abraham, though, that a son coming from his own body would be his heir. Well, ten years pass since the Lord made that first promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Still no children by the time we get to Genesis chapter 16, which is where we are picking the story up this morning. Sarah 
proposes that they have children through her maidservant, Hagar. She offers to give Hagar to Abraham as a second-class wife to serve as a surrogate mother of sorts. Now, believe it or not, this was an acceptable thing to do in that time and culture. We obviously would not do that in our time and culture. It would not go over well in any kind of context that you or I could ever dream up in our minds. But it was something that they did do in those days on a rare occasion. Sarah is criticized by some Bible readers for what she does here. But before we judge Sarah too quickly, we should realize that her options were limited. Let's put ourselves into her shoes for a moment. They've been in Canaan 10 years now and still have no children. She and Abraham are both getting beyond the expected ages for having children. Abraham is now 85. Sarah is 75. Can I assume that most of you women here would consider 75 years old to be beyond the years that you would want to be having children? There was tremendous pressure in that culture for a woman to provide her husband with a son to carry on the family name. Added to that was this promise that the Lord has made to Abraham that he would have many descendants. Well, now you, as Abraham's wife, the one who would, under normal circumstances, bear these children that are the fulfillment of the promise, you've been unable to get pregnant. From your perspective, you feel like you are the one that is standing in the way of the fulfillment of the Lord's promise and plan for Abraham. In your mind, it's your fault that things have not worked out the way they're supposed to. You feel like you have to come up with a way for this promise to be fulfilled for your husband's sake, regardless of the cost to yourself even. Sarah undoubtedly spent a great deal of time thinking through her options, and the only solution that she could come up with, short of a miracle of God, was to give her maidservant to her husband as a surrogate mother, second-class wife, so that they could finally build a family. Well, as unbelievable as it might sound, the Lord actually wanted her and Abraham to wait for the miracle. That happened to be the Lord's plan for them. The Lord tells us over in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord's power is given an opportunity to shine in our life when we reach the limits of our own strength and intellect. We need to remind ourselves when we are in a situation beyond our abilities that it is an opportunity for the Lord's power to shine in our life. Sarah and Abraham are in a situation that is far beyond their own abilities to overcome. The Lord wants them to wait and trust Him to keep His promise to them. That's not what they do, though. It says, Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Abraham agrees to go along with the plan that Sarah has come up with. 
making him as guilty as her for the train wreck that is developing here. Back in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham had asked the Lord if he intended for Abraham to adopt one of his servants, namely Eleazar, and make him his heir. And the Lord told him that a son coming from his own body would be his heir. Now in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah suggests that they build a family through her maidservant Hagar. Well, this plan is really just a variation on the same idea that Abraham had a, a chapter earlier, isn't it? You want me to use my servant? And then Sarah goes, hey, how about you use my servant? And God's going, no, no servants. I want you two to have a child. I'm promising you that. That's the way it's going to play out. He had made it clear to both of them that he intended for a son to come from them. They don't see how that is going to happen, though. So they decide to take things into their own hands and make it happen. Verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Hagar conceived without any apparent trouble. So it appears that the problem, at least on a biological level, was Sarah rather than Abraham. Noting that will help us to understand the different ways that these two react to this situation as it unfolds. Sarah is understandably upset on a variety of levels, which we will talk about in a moment. Abraham, on the other hand, he's feeling pretty good about how things have worked out. He now has two women to enjoy his wives, and he is getting the child he has always longed for. Life is good for Abraham. This is a great plan that Sarah has come up with. Or is it? Second part of verse 4 says, When she knew she was pregnant, talking about Hagar, when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, Sarah. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Uh-oh. So things are not so good after all. As we put ourselves into the shoes of each of these three people, though, we can better understand how each of them reacts the way they do. Hagar says she began to despise her mistress, Sarah. That word translated despise, it means to look down on someone. It means to see another one as smaller, weaker, inferior. Hagar has been a personal servant of Sarah's. Servants had no rights or privileges. She had been accustomed to being told what to do and never asked for her opinion about anything. She has been a nobody, barely a human being. Hagar is now suddenly promoted to the position of second-class wife, surrogate mother for the family. Now that she's pregnant with her master's only child, she has achieved something that her mistress Sarah could not do. It's understandable that she would be tempted to feel more important than her place allowed. 
and begin to see Sarah as inferior to herself. Her attitude has changed towards Sarah, and it is very obvious to Sarah. Sarah is not happy. She's mad at herself for having come up with this plan that is now backfiring on her in ways that she had not anticipated. In typical human fashion, she is blaming others for things that she has responsibility for. She's blaming Abraham when it was her plan to start with. She's hurt and mad at Hagar. Sarah had personally selected Hagar to be the woman to bear children for their family. This was certainly not the only servant that Abraham and Sarah had available to them. But Hagar was chosen as the person to carry out this very special role in their family. Sarah obviously had a lot of trust in Hagar. Now she feels betrayed by this person she has allowed to come into this close, intimate circle that only her and her husband, Abraham, occupied before. She's hurt and she's angry at her husband, Abraham, because she doesn't feel like he's supporting her the way that he ought to. The text doesn't say, but I would guess that Abraham has probably been showing Hagar more attention than Sarah thinks he should. He had probably largely ignored Hagar before. Now that she's pregnant, carrying the child of his dreams, he's probably doting over her. Let me help you with that. You better sit down. Oh, you shouldn't lift things like that. Sarah, can you get Hagar a glass of water and, and, and another pillow? I mean, you can imagine the friction in his household. Verse 6. Your slave is, your, is in your hands, Abram says. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So Abraham, he acts like he doesn't have a dog in his fight. He doesn't want to get in the middle of it. He tells Sarah to do whatever she wants with her servant, Hagar. See, he's getting what he wants, a child. For him, everything else is minor in comparison to that. Well, once Abraham gives Sarah permission, she begins to mistreat Hagar terribly. And I can almost hear Sarah thinking to herself, if this maid thinks she's going to take my place in this family, she has another thing coming. I'm going to make her life a living nightmare. I will make it so bad that she will be forced to leave. Well, it finally does get so bad that Hagar feels that her only recourse is to run away. She decides to go back to her homeland of Egypt. Hagar, Hagar has become the casualty in this train wreck that Sarah and Abraham cooked up. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. 
And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. So Hagar, she's running away. She's out in the middle of this desert. And it says the Lord comes to Hagar out in the middle of this desert and begins to have a conversation with her. And he asks her where she's come from and where she's going, even though the Lord knows all about what has been happening back at home. It reveals in a beautiful way how the Lord's eye is always on us. He looks out for the widow and the oppressed. Here, when Hagar is blamed and abandoned by everyone, the Lord stands by her side and he comforts her. He is her advocate and her protector. The Lord sees us sitting out in the desert of our life, alone, frightened, confused, angry. And he comes out into the desert where we are and he engages us in conversation. He asks, where have you come from and where are you going? And he doesn't ask us these questions for his benefit. He asks these questions for our benefit. He asks, these, he asks us these questions to cause us to reflect. Where have I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? Who am I trusting in? And the way we answer these questions is going to have a profound impact on how we see our whole life. Verse 9, then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to, to count. So the Lord, he tells Hagar to go back to your mistress and submit to her. Well, we don't expect that, do we? I mean, we're hoping that the Lord will set her free from this awful life. to pursue a more self-fulfilling and happy life, to get away from Sarah and all the awfulness that was taking place in that home. But that's not what happens. Lord, he doesn't release her from her obligations to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord wants her to go back. But she won't be going back the same way, the Lord will be with her. In our lives, there are situations we can find ourselves in that we want to run away from. We want the Lord to just take us out of the awful place and set us free from it. But running from the situation is not what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to live a christ honoring life in the midst of our real life, no matter what kinds of problems and troubles and circumstances that we're facing. You may be in the middle of a terrible situation right now that's pressing you beyond your limits. God may not take you out of that situation, but you won't go through it alone. He will be with you. See, we shouldn't base our decision to run away or not on how hard 
the situation is. What does the Lord want us to do? He might want us to stay put and trust Him through it. In fact, it's very likely so. The Lord does something else extraordinary and unexpected here. The Lord blesses Hagar and gives her a promise similar to the amazing promise that he gave to Abraham. He tells her that she will have many descendants, too numerous to count, becoming a great nation. Hagar is one of the only very select few people in the Bible who are ever honored with a promise on this kind of scale. And who is she? Is she some kind of super saint? No. She's a maidservant from Egypt, a virtual nobody. That's the kind of people the Lord likes to honor like this, though. I love it how the Lord takes a person that others have cast off as useless. He rescues them. He blesses them gives them a promise, and he infuses their life with worth and glory that no one would have ever expected. He does that with Hagar. He does that with people all the time. There are people right here, right now, that he's done that with. People who were cast off as useless, who he's rescued, blessed, given a promise to and infused them with worth and glory that no one expected. Verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord said to her, You're now pregnant, and you will, be, you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. She's told to name her son Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Every time Hagar will call her son's name, she will be reminded of the truth that God hears. God heard her. God came to her aid. God blessed and honored her. When everyone else abandoned her, God came to her rescue. Every time she says her son's name, she will be reminded of that truth. It's interesting to note that the name Ishmael has come to mean outcast. For example, the famous novel Moby Dick begins with the words, Call me Ishmael. Call me outcast. But outcast is not what the name Ishmael meant when the Lord gave it to this child. It meant God hears. God hears. One of the most precious of truths, isn't it? The God who spoke the very universe into existence hears our cry. He cares about you. He comes to rescue you. It could be said that the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one big expression of God hears. God heard our cry and he has rescued us.
The Lord continues in verse 12, speaking about Ishmael's life. He says, He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he'll live in hostility toward all his brothers. So Ishmael's life will not be an easy one. He will be a stubborn person standing against the rest of the world and it will bring a lot of trouble in his life. But in spite of that, the Lord will keep his promise to Hagar, giving her many descendants through this son, becoming a nation of people. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well was called Bir La'ai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar gives a name to the Lord. She gives him the name, you are the God who sees me. You know, in the Bible, people give names to other people, to animals, to places, to things, but not to God. Here, she gives a name to God. And what makes this even more interesting is that the Lord accepts this name that he gives her, or that she, he accepts this name that she gives him. And what a great name it is. You are the God who sees me. She says here, I have now seen the one who sees me. It reminds us of something that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29. Jesus was speaking and he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He has his eye on the sparrow. How much more does he have his eye on you and me? The well's name means well of the living one who sees me. The Lord saw her suffering and he came and he met her out there in the desert to let her know that he had seen her suffering, that he for her. The Lord sees you and me too. He sees the tears. He sees the fears. He sees the confusion. He sees the uncertainty. He sees the worry. He sees everything. And what a wonderful comfort it is to, be, to know that we are seen. He sees us. He sees us. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So Hagar, she did what the Lord told her to do. She returned home to Abraham and Sarah. And I'm struck by the courage and the faith and the obedience of this woman. I mean, this would not have been easy for her to do. When she gets back to the home of Sarah and Abraham, and Abraham, things don't change. It doesn't get better. The relationship between Sarah and Hagar continues to be difficult. Sarah still mistreats her. But it's what the Lord told Hagar to do, and she does it, trusting that the Lord will help her through it. 
The Lord doesn't always take the hard things out of our life. He wants us to live a faithful life, trusting Him, walking with Him, whether there are hard things or not. He uses the hard things in our life to soften us, to knock off our sharp edges, to smooth out the rough spots, to make us beautiful and wise and kind. Well, in closing, four things I want to remind us of from this story. The first is Sarah and Abraham's faith in God gets distracted by circumstances that appear to be getting in the way of the fulfillment of God's promise to them. They take on responsibility that is not theirs, and they attempt to fulfill God's plan in their own effort. And what's the result? A train wreck. They should have waited for God's miracle. I wonder how many train wrecks you and I have created in our life (laughs) for the same reason that we didn't wait and trust. Second, the Lord, he comes and he comforts Hagar, this young pregnant woman who has been blamed and abandoned by everyone in her life. And he lets her see the one who sees her, who's looking after her. He blesses her with a promise that few people have ever received, and he lets her give him a name. You're the God who sees me. And the Lord is the one who sees us too. He cares for us. He loves us. He knows about our suffering and our pain. We are never alone and hidden from his caring, watchful eye. Third, Hagar's courage her faith, her obedience to the Lord, returning to this home of Abraham and Sarah, even in the face of more bad stuff, waiting for her when she gets there. She's a profound example for us of one who trusts the Lord even when things are hard. Finally, even though it looks like Sarah and Abraham have made a complete mess of God's plan for them. His plan is still going to be fulfilled in spite of what they have done. He's going to give them a son of their own. The child's name will be Isaac, which means he laughs. Referring to Abraham and Sarah's reaction to the birth of their son Isaac, they will both laugh at the unexpected goodness of the Lord to them. We can make some pretty big messes in our lives, but God has a way of taking our worst stuff and turning it into something good. Maybe you're thinking that your life is ruined because of something that you have done or something that someone else has done. I want to encourage you to come to the Lord and lay it before Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. He has not left you. Your life is not ruined. 
He's the God who sees you. And he can turn your tears of disappointment and regret and discouragement into belly laughs of joy with his unexpected goodness. Psalm 33:18 says, "The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you." Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this story from the life of Hagar and Sarah and Abraham. We thank you for the reminder of your faithfulness that you see us, Lord, and you are our great rescuer. I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters here this morning, especially those who feel like they are running. Their troubles are chasing after them and they are out in what feels like a desert, all alone, abandoned and rejected. I pray, Lord, that you come and you sit beside them and you remind them that you see them. You know it. You know all about everything that's been happening. You love them, Lord. You're with them. They're never alone. Encourage them. Strengthen them. Give them a new sense of courage and faith. May you breathe your strength into our lives today. May Jesus be glorified in us and through us. In his name we pray these things. Amen. <laughs>